G'day G's and P's. Before the theme, I'd like to welcome you to another of our highlights of Late Night Live, this time a conversation with historian and Indian expert John Zabriskie, which we recorded back in May last year. And I learned many things from him about the history of that extraordinary country about the early seemingly secular Harapans, the first female ruler of an Indian Islamic dynasty, the brief and only rule of a transvestite, and the great periods of religious tolerance and turbulence, even a double defenestration. So I hope you'll enjoy this look at the shortest history of India. And Giuseppe and the LNL team join me in welcoming you to what I believe will be a particularly fascinating edition of the program. In just uh, five years, India's population is expected to overtake China's as uh, both countries hit the one and a half billion mark. And by then, India's five largest cities will have economies comparable to middle-income countries like Serbia and Bulgaria. And as uh, PM Modi navigates the country's delicate relationship with China and defends its position of neutrality on the Russian-Ukraine war, India's position in the world is becoming more important than ever. Now, our next guest has looked to the past to understand the politics of the presence in India and to look at how they might respond to the challenges they face with a bulging population tackling religious pluralism and finding their place in the global polity. John Zabriskie is an Australian author and researcher specialising in India. He's the best-selling author of The House of Jaipur, the inside story of India's most glamorous royal family. And he was on this very program a few years ago talking with Paul Barclay about his last book, Empire of Enchantment, the story of Indian magic. His latest is The Shortest History of India, published by Blacking Books. John, welcome to the little wireless program. You start your tale with something that happened in 1856 when a contractor named William Brenton was working on the Lahore Railway and discovered what? Thousands of little bricks. That's right, Philip. It's a pleasure to be on your program again. Uh, Yes, so 1856, the year before the mutiny breaks out in India, uh, William Brunton is is building the Multan to Lahore Railway in what is now Pakistan. And uh, he needs track ballast to construct the railway line and uh, lo and behold finds these uniformly shaped bricks in a village called Harappa, uh, which is in present-day Punjab. So he's he's puzzled by this. The the locals in the village have been in, in the village have been using these bricks to construct their houses. He contacts Alexander Cunningham, someone from the uh, Archaeological Survey of India. He thinks that these bricks might have something to do with the remnants of Alexander the Great's invasion of India in the fourth uh, century BCE, and the story kind of. takes a bit of a pause then until the 1920s when John Marshall, who's the uh, head of the Archaeological Survey of India, takes a closer look. And what he finds is quite extraordinary and it takes the history of Indian civilization back some 3,000 years to what was previously known. He discovers the remains of a civilization that at its height was twice the size of the civilizations of Egypt and Mesopotamia combined. Now what we now know as the Indus Valley Civilization or more accurately the Harappan Civilization flourished between about 3300 BC and 1300 BCE. 
And uh, it, it was an extraordinary uh, civilization because as archaeologists dug deeper into the sands of the Punjab and Sindh and even sites as, as, as far west as Afghanistan and, and east towards uh, what is now the capital of India, New Delhi, they found remains of towns that were built that had a remarkable similarity. The streets were laid out in grids with widths conforming to a set ratio depending on their importance. Public baths, sanitation systems. There was, it was seemed to be to them a egalitarian society because there was no evidence of palaces. And unlike uh, Egypt, where you had pyramids, you know, marking elaborate burial places, there were there was nothing. All the graves were similar, but uh, the, the puzzle was. So who there was were these there people? was a sort of democracy in death. But yes. before we leave your bricks, no Rosetta Stone has been discovered to crack the code. Exactly, exactly. What has been found is about five thousand seals. Now these are not much bigger than postage stamps, but they contain some some form of writing and imagery it might be uh, you know Im imagery of of, uh, of a human figure it might be an animal it might be uh, it, it might be a fish or something like so that they're, they're a bit hieroglyphic in that sense they are a bit hieroglyphic the problem is that there's not enough of them and no matter how many times they've they've uh, put them through computers and other means of, of trying to decipher what these images are uh, they cannot for the life of them exactly pinpoint what they are so it's uh, I mean that, that some some people, some archaeologists uh, think they might be some sort of primitive barcode because these were seals <laughs> that could have been used in trade, which was extensive at that time. Well, if computers don't help us, what about DNA? Because that's been used to study the, the pre-ancestry of the earliest Indians. That's right. Yes, yes. We now have uh, a whole school of archaeology which is based on DNA and it's really uh, shed a whole new light on who might have set up this extraordinary civilization were. And uh, from that DNA evidence, we believe that uh, the inhabitants of the Harappan civilization originally came from the Zagros Mountains uh, of Iran about 7000 BCE. That they were, of course, not the first wave of migrants to India. You had the out of Africa migration, which was about 65,000 years ago. And this was the same migration that uh, spread through Central Asia, South Asia, and then on to Australia. Uh, and then, of course, we can talk about this later, there were further waves of migration as well. Now, the population of the Harapans ranged, well, between 400,000 and a million? Yes, that's right, yes. As, as I said, it was a, an extraordinary civilization um, stretching from uh, Afghanistan in the west to what is present day the Yamuna River, uh, which is uh, which Delhi sits on uh, in the east and as far south as you know the Arabian uh, Sea in present day Gujarat. And it was a it was an important trading civilization as well, because we find evidence of goods such as uh, precious stones uh, in places as far west as, as, as the Gulf today. But we, the, the thing is, we don't exactly know what happened to, to the civilization and why it declined. Well, there's the possibility of prolonged drought, isn't there? Yes, yes. There, there are various, uh, various hypotheses. Earthquakes that might have changed river uh, courses, deforestation, prolonged droughts. You know, we probably as a technology for, for ascertaining these things gets better, we'll have a better idea. But for now, the prolonged drought seems to be the, the, most, the most promising candidate to explain what happened. But while they were alive and kicking, there is uh, strong evidence of early religions, aren't there? I understand the, the possible use of the swastika, for example. Yes, that's right. And uh, we get that uh, evidence from these seals. And there's one particular seal which shows what appears to be, it's a figure sitting cross-legged on a stand surrounded by uh, animals uh, with an elaborate headdress. And this yogic looking figure has been termed a proto-Shiva, so Shiva being one of the main gods of the Hindu pantheon. You know, other, other, other historians and archaeologists differ in that assessment. But yes, definitely there was some sort of organized religion 
and uh, and and that and elements of that would be incorpor- later incorporated into Hinduism. And yet, you do say it's possible that the civilization may have been the world's first secular state. That possibility still exists. Yes, yes, because there's no evidence of temples, fire altars, yes, but uh, temples, no, um, and and no, so no evidence of any sort of religious hierarchy. But yes, look, it it. It appears that, like a lot of these early civilizations, they may have been animist in their beliefs. So, hence the worship of trees, like people trees, which are still sacred in in Hinduism today, uh, is something as a recurring motive in some of these seals. So, yes, it it there was some sort of religious I'm, beliefs. I'm a bit of a a tree believer, actually, but uh, so <laughs> I'm sympathetic to that. Now, what? geographical area did ancient India cover? Ah, well, it depends how you define it. I mean, it's, 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 it's an interesting question. I mean, just the other day, or maybe a couple of weeks ago, the, uh, the head of the RSS, which we'll be talking about later, no doubt, which is uh, it's the largest volunteer organisation in the world, is the main recruiting ground for the BJP. Now, the head of the RSS... Um, uh, public uh, declared that in 20 years, India will, uh, you know, th- that India wants to reclaim what is called Akhand Bharat. Now, Akhand Bharat is a little bit, uh, I'm, I'm not making, this is an unfair uh, comparison, but if you remember uh, when ISIS, uh, uh, when we saw maps of what the Islamic caliphate under ISIS would look like stretching from North Africa through to the Philippines, well, Akhand Bharat stretches from Burma to Afghanistan, and that is considered by the RSS to be, you know, the the, the real India. And and what was disturbing about uh, this declaration made a couple of weeks ago is that the head of the RSS said that nothing will stand in our way in order to achieve Akan Bharat, uh, and that anybody who opposes the creation of Akan Bharat will be eliminated. So, uh, but yes, so it's a. Uh, probably the uh, most extreme example of what the extent of India uh, comprises. Talking to John Zubriskie about his shortest history of India, I'd like you to tell the listener about that fascinating fellow, the British polymath William Jones. Yes, William Jones. He was, uh, he, yes, a polymath, uh, fluent in 16 languages and uh, apparently with the aid of a dictionary could uh, uh, read and write and, and converse in another eight. Um, now, he arrived in India in 1883. He was uh, a judge on the Supreme Court. He believed that in order to dispense justice fairly, just judges needed to know uh, something about Hindu law, and in order for them to gain that knowledge, they should have an understanding of Sanskrit texts. So, I guess Sanskrit was uh, the sixteenth language that he that he mastered uh, fluently. And as he was as he was studying uh, these ancient Sanskrit texts and mastering this language, he noticed a remarkable similarity between Sanskrit and the Indo-Aryan languages, and this. Was a you know this is where linguistics takes over from archaeology in a way because you know we 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 knew that the Aryans who came through um, you know India uh, who who came through uh, who settled in India in from about the fifteenth century BCE onwards you know were were but we didn't know where they came from and thanks to Jones's linguistic studies, we could ascertain that this race of people came from Central Asia. And in fact, the Aryans spread as far west as uh, modern-day Ireland, because the uh, official name of Ireland, which was Ira, it derives from the word Aryan as well. I've, so, never, uh, I've never known that, John. Thank you. That's, <laughs> that's fabulous. Now, of course, we know the Aryans pretty well, but tell me about the Dasas, who were a much darker-skinned people. That's right. Yeah, so they were the, I guess you could call them the indigenous inhabitants of, of, of India, like our Aboriginal people here in Australia. Descendants, you know, most probably of that uh, out-of-Africa migration. 
who were living in, as, in a fairly primitive uh, manner uh, throughout India. But yes, so, so the Aryans intermingled with the Dasas. And, uh, and again, uh, you know, there was this, you know, absorbed some of their, uh, you know, gods and beliefs. So for yeah, instance, and yet, okay, they mingled, but they also kept a sufficient distance to become the basis of the caste system. That's right. Yes, yes, yes. So that's, that's what we get from about the first century BCE. We can't be exact, but we do get evidence of the caste system. And a lot of the evidence for the creation of the caste system is also based on uh, archaeological DNA nowadays. But yes, so there was, of course, the pale-skinned Aryans, you know, the master race of, uh, that, that the Nazi Germans you know, uh, later appropriated, uh, mixing with the darker-skinned Dasas and, and creating this hierarchy, which is, you know, of course, is, becomes much, much more complicated. So it's, does Dasas become Dalits? Not, not necessarily. I don't think you can draw that line exactly, but, uh, but yes, it's, it's uh, because I think by by the time you get that division uh, into the the different Vardanas, the different classes, and the and with the uh, untouchables at the base of that uh, hierarchy, um, you know, there's been enough intermingling. So I don't think you can actually determine that the Dasas specifically will, would always be, uh, would, would, would necessarily be the Dalits. John, much is known of the Vedic texts which introduce the cycle of birth, death and rebirth. And of course, we know about the notions of karma and dharma. Mm. And we know that Buddhism was also a major religion. But on my first trips to India, I became very intrigued by the Jains. Tell me about them. Yes, the Jains. Well, Mahavira, who was the founder of the Jain religion, he was contemporary to to um, to Gautama Buddha. Uh, but the Jains, uh, it was a much hard line would be the wrong term. But but they they, they you know to, to become a Jain, you had to you couldn't till the soil, for instance, because mm-hmm. uh, you might uh, uh, kill an ant. Or, well, or, or I, I have a very strong image of Jain holy men wandering around naked. Naked, that's right. With a cloth over the mouth to yes. prevent inhaling insects while yes. staring at the ground lest they tread on a bug. Exactly, and not being able to light a candle at night should a moth fly into it. Yes, so uh, you know, so the the bar for for being a true Jain in that sense is fairly high. So therefore, it didn't spread as fast as uh, as and and as far as as Buddhism. But the interesting thing about it is because you you couldn't be a farmer if you were a Jain because you might disturb a you know insect that's in the ground. They became very strong in the business uh, community. So a lot of uh, the big business houses today in India are owned by Jains. And in fact, the diamond trade uh, is is 99% controlled by Jains who all come from one tiny village in, in Gujarat, Palanpur. Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism sit alongside each other. But of course, there's a crossover, isn't there, in many of the teachings? Yes, there is. Yes, yes. So... Um, so, you know, Hindus, you know, you know, like Buddha is an avatar of, of the Hindu god Vishnu. Um, Hindus today view um, Buddhism and Jainism as, as offshoots of, of, of Hinduism, which is not necessarily correct, but um, which goes some way to explaining why, why uh, uh, Muslims and Christians are, are being vilified because they're not counted in that uh, set. Um, but yes, there was a lot of crossover and there was a lot of, and and these these religions existed quite harmoniously side by side for hundreds and hundreds of years. I want you to now to tell me about the Julius Caesar of India, Chandra Gupta. Yes, Chandra Gupta was uh, one of the Gupta uh, rulers of the Gupta Empire, which uh, uh, emerged in India in around the fourth fifth century A.D. Now, and uh, um, this was now looked back uh, fondly as the golden age or the uh, uh, classical age of, of, of Hinduism in, in India. Uh, so it was a time of great prosperity. It was a 
time of uh, scientific discovery. It was uh, the, the period when some of the great epics uh, that we know today, such as the Mahabharata and the Ramayana and the Kama Sutra, were were composed. So it is, uh, and and he was a uh, you know an enlightened ruler, a very tolerant ruler. As I said, the, you know, the, the, these religions, Hinduism, Buddhism and Jainism flourished. Uh, it was also, you know, a, a time when the arts were, were, were flourishing as well. I remember doing a program decades ago how India not only invented the game of chess, but also the concept of zero. Zero, that's right. Yes, yes. The concept of zero was, was invented then. Um, the notation of numerals from one to nine was, was another, another discovery that uh, spread around the world, of course. There was uh, an astronomer called Aryabhata, uh, who uh, was the first person to posit that the Earth was a sphere that rotates on its axis. Well, that's, and, that, uh, of course, is ridiculous. But uh... <laughs> Yes, yes. That's so right. the Gupta reign was a, was very prosperous with little crime and a caring society. And a caring society, yes. And and we know a lot about this from the uh, accounts of pilgrims, uh, Buddhist pilgrims from China coming to India, like Fa Shane, uh, who who left extensive records of of the of the society of the time of the cities and the prosperity that was there, free hospitals, vegetarianism. And all these things, apparently even onions and garlic were frowned upon, so something that, uh, um, you know, taking things quite seriously in those days. (laughs) (laughs) Now, now John, even at that time, when we're talking the 4th century BCE, India had a very big population. Yeah, something like 50, 60 million, which which is just, is, is a reflection of just, you know, of how... Two things, really, the sophistication of, of the societies then, and and also just just the uh, you know, bounteousness of, of of nature. I mean, uh, uh, India's civilization flourished around the Gan- Indo uh, the Gangetic plains, so where the you know the Yamuna and the Ganges join together and then flow off into the uh, Bay of Bengal. I mean, that was uh, an incredibly rich floodplain uh, that could support, uh, you know, this, a population of this density. And, uh, and, and today it is still you know, considered the, the heartland, the Hindu heartland of India. This is uh, John Zabriskie, one of a marvellous family that I've long admired, and we're discussing his shortest history of India, published by Black Ink Books. Now, squeeze into the Doctor Who TARDIS with me, and we're going to travel to the 11th century. Islam invades India, and Persian becomes the language of government. That's right, yes. you know the the Islamic invasion. It wasn't, it wasn't the, India's first encounter with Islam. That came very soon after the death of the Prophet, when uh, Muslim traders set up uh, arrived in South India on the Malabar coast. Uh, then you had another community of of, of Muslims in Sindh, but it was uh, Mahmud of Ghazni who uh, he didn't conquer India as such, but he launched numerous raids, mainly to plunder temples and uh, and cities uh, during his his reign, which was in the early 11th century. But and uh, shortly after he uh, departed, you had the Delhi Sultanate being established. And, uh, and yes, Persian became the, the language of, of the court and, and remained so until really the, the, the 19th century. Now, I understand the era also provides us with a, uh, the first female ruler of an Islamic dynasty and also briefly a transvestite ruler. <laughs> yes, that's right. The female ruler was Razia al-Din. And uh, she came to the throne in 1205. She was aged 31. She was uh, selected by her her father, Iltut Mish, 
uh, because she was he considered her to be far more competent than any of his sons to rule. And yes, it was an extraordinary, uh, it is an extraordinary story. Uh, her reign was not particularly long, but it was notable. She appeared in public unveiled uh, in order to get closer to, to, to her subjects, but this, of course, uh, upset the ulema in Delhi. She started schools, libraries. She was a skilled military tactician. I guess things started to go wrong when she had a romantic liaison with an Abyssinian slave who was also responsible for the royal horse stables. Uh, and this uh, also earned her the ire of provincial governors. She was then imprisoned by uh, a Turkic slave called Altunia. Um, now, one story is that they were childhood sweethearts but anyway um, so she and, and although she was initially imprisoned by him on the orders of, of, of the governors um, she eventually married him and uh, and the two of them led an army to reclaim her throne uh, but her reign only lasted about four years and she was eventually killed by her own soldiers so then we have another sort of century or so of numerous um, uh, rulers uh, in, in this Delhi Sultanate until we get to 1316 when uh, a ruler by the name of Qutb al-Din Mubarak comes to the throne. Now, um, he was, as, uh, as you mentioned, a transvestite. Uh, his rule was also particularly short, only four months, um, which by the standards of the day was not too bad because I think his predecessor lasted about 35 days. But, uh, well, some, uh, Kutab, some popes have, haven't lasted much longer. Yeah, but Qutab uh, al-Din was, uh, yes, he, he, he liked to appear in public wearing women's jewellery and clothes. He had a catamite slave as his lover. And according to some accounts, um, you know, when passion overtook him, the two would make love in public. Um, and he also I don't know. Naked I don't in... know whether you've written the shortest history of him <laughs> or the most scandalous, John. Scandalous, yes. <laughs> one warms to the this era. Now, one of the greatest Mughal leaders was Akbar, who becomes emperor at the quite young age of 13. Now, his reign... Yeah as you record, has a bloody beginning, but then he becomes known for his religious tolerance. Yes, yes, it does have a bloody beginning because he has to have his foster brother eliminated and that involves throwing him off a balcony, not once but twice. Um, but yes, eventually I'm sorry. he does. I'm sorry, yeah, oh. <laughs> what? The first one didn't work? Yes, the first one didn't work, so they, they dragged him up again and, uh, and tossed him off. Uh, but... Um, Yes, look, he, yes, he was, um, yeah, so he was this sort of poster boy of tolerance, but his rule did start in a rather bloody way, and there was uh, a good deal of conquest uh, that had, had to be done to, in order to consolidate his empire to begin with. But, but then, he was a Sufi mystic, wasn't he? Yes, he was, yes, yes, yes. Like most of the rulers of the Delhi Sultanate and, and the Mughal rulers were, were, were followers, followers of Sufi mysticism, and, uh, and so that... Uh, you know, is you know, so you know, that's he he tolerated other religions to the point where he built a house of worship uh, in Fatipur Sikri, uh, where every Thursday he would hold discussions with leaders of different religions. And uh, well, among... he was into synchronicity in that he believed all faiths contained an element of truth. Exactly, exactly. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, um, now the Jesuits, when they came to his court, you know, took this tolerance to, 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 to believe that they might be able to actually convert him to Christianity. And, uh, and uh, he did actually go as far as dressing in Portuguese clothing and kissing the Bible, but then they realized that he pays the same you know, attention to all the other religions that he's, that he's fascinated by, as well as you know, praying five times a day and going to the mosque every Friday. So, um, so they failed in that endeavor. But uh, yes, no, but he was. He had the Mahabharata and the Ramayana uh, translated into Persian, uh, gospels written in Latin also translated into Persian. So, yes, it was a remarkable reign. And it was his grandson who would build the Taj Mahal. Yes, 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 in memory of his uh, beloved wife, Mumtaz Mahal, yes, Shah Jahan. Who died in childbirth, that, giving that birth is. to her 14th child, for heaven's sake. <laughs> yes, that's, yes, that was uh, not unusual in those days. So the Mughals would rule northern India for hundreds of years, over 300 years. 
Technically, yes. I mean, the last Mughal ruler was uh, Bahadur Shah Zafar, who uh, um, was the ruler of Delhi in, in 1857 when uh, um, when the mutiny erupted. But uh, technically, you know, it, it, but but after the death of Aurangzeb in in uh, in, in the early uh, 1700s, uh, the, the the empire started to break up. A lot of internecine fighting and over succession and so on, and uh, and and the empire did start to break up. Under the Mughal dynasty, India was a land of gold and silver and precious stones of spices and slaves. But it was one of the most sophisticated economies, wasn't it? The roads were safe, the ports were efficient, tariffs were low. Little wonder it attracted the attention of the East India Company. It did, yes, that's right. Um, as as it did other European trading companies, uh, French, Dutch, Danish, uh, Portuguese. But yes, the East India Company got its charter in 1600 and uh, and sent emissaries to uh, uh, the Mughal emperors uh, when this, in, in, at the time the emperor was uh, Jahangir. You know, they would come laden with. Uh, uh, Textiles, even uh, Sir Thomas Rowe, he was uh, the second of the, their envoys, uh, brought a royal coach from England with him to impress the emperor uh, in order to <clears throat> gain trading rights, because they recognised that India was, you know, with its, uh, yes, you know, as, as you said, it was, uh, uh, you know, the, you know. Uh, I, I'm not sure the comparison of China, but it would have been on par uh, as as the richest country in the world. You know, producing something like a quarter of the world's manufactures, including textiles, spices, sugar, weaponry, and so on. So it was, uh, you know, a fertile field for these uh, traders of the East India Company. Now, much has been documented about the company, but tell us how. Well, a trading company acquired the attributes of a state, and, yes, and in right. a sense, paved the way for the British occupation. Yeah, well, look, they, they, they set up what were called factories around the coast of India. Um, and these trading posts, of course, had to be defended. And so they bring over soldiers and uh, recruit some locals to defend these companies. And then, of course, you had the, uh, the rivalry between the, the different trading companies that were operating in India, then most importantly, between the English and the French. Um, so, uh, as you, I mean, the, the, that, that's a pretty complicated history of the various wars that took place in the 18th, uh, 17th, and 18th centuries uh, between the India and the French, between the, the English and the French, but they were also played out on Indian soil. Both the English and the French would um, take advantage of local uh, conflicts uh, between various different princely states, a lot of them offshoots of the Mughal Empire, uh, back one side or another, and that way extend their reach. So, uh, um, and so gradually you had them assuming, you know, the attributes of not just uh, a, a trading company, but, you know, also into, uh, you know, in, into like a capitalist colonial state, if you like. Uh, they would be uh, making laws, administering justice. <laughs> they would be collecting pieces, uh, you know, as, as, as well as, uh, you know, finding new ways to conquer more territory. Now, John, had there been a, an ICAC in the in Britain at the time, they would have discovered that 40% of British MPs had shares in the company. Yes, that's right. Yes. So so when, when, when things were getting uh, uh, bad, so you, you had a very bad uh, famine in uh, around about 1770 and, uh, you know, the, the, the company was, you know, Bent on extracting as much as it could, famine or no famine, from from the from the poor peasantry that uh, uh, you know it, it controlled, and of course um, you know, it just couldn't sustain that, and and the company went bankrupt. Uh, uh, but because of this nexus between the, uh, uh, you know, its shareholders who were, you know, in, in positions of power and 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 the company, uh, it was uh, uh, deemed too big to fail. So uh, it was bailed out. There were some conditions uh, placed uh, on, on its operations. It was uh, 
half-hearted attempts to, to, to make it a little bit more accountable and to curb some of its excesses. But, uh, uh, it, you know, it, it continued its, 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 its campaign of plunder pretty much unabated. Take us to what the Indians call the First War of Independence, the mutiny of 1857. Yes, that's right. Um, look, uh, it, it is, uh, you know, one of these iconic events, um, still the subject of, of great debate today in, in India um, as to its causes, its, its outcomes, why it failed and, and so on. But, but, but essentially, it was uh, uh, a rebellion by sepoys, who that was a name given to Indian soldiers, uh, uh, in, in, a, in a town called Meirut in, in May 1857. They marched on Delhi, uh, went straight to the uh, emperor, the then emperor, the half-blind Bahadur Shah Zafar, um, made him their figurehead, although he was by then, you know, an en enfeebled, half-blind um, ruler who had no power as such. But, uh, you know, the, the British were on the back foot, uh, and and there was huge loss of life, uh, civilian life, uh, in in cities like uh, Kanpur, Lucknow, Delhi, and and numerous other places. Uh, now, the causes of of the mutiny are, are, are interesting. Um, Part of it had to do with the some, something called the Doctrine of Lapse, which uh, was uh, pursued by the then uh, Governor-General, uh, Lord Dalhousie, uh, which stipulated that uh, whenever the British could take over a princely state if the ruler was incompetent or if there was a dispute over succession. And this is what uh, gave them the excuse to take over the state of, or the province of Aoud, which is where present-day Lucknow is. And this was a huge state, and it was also, and it was them taking over, uh, dismissing the, the then ruler of uh, of Aoud, sending him into exile in Calcutta, taking over this incredibly agriculturally rich state, which was obviously part of the reasoning behind uh, their actions, uh, but caused a lot of discontent. Now, there were numerous other causes to, you know, which, which uh, numerous other factors which caused uh, unease among the Indian population, uh, things like the uh, activities of missionaries who were allowed into India after 1813, um, uh, laws to suppress Sati, which was uh, the immolation of widows on the funeral pyre, and 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 just you know e even even uh, uh, changes in in you know the the, uh, the the army structure as well, which prevented Indians from rising up the ranks of, of the army and and kept. In other words, the, they got about everything they could get wrong wrong. But they did. Yes, the British reprisals were horrific. They were, they were, they were, they were, um, yes. Uh, I mean, this, this has been very well documented in, by people like William Dalrymple, who I know has been on your show several times. But yes, they were, they were, I mean, they, they, they had um, sepoys who had been convicted of, uh, of, uh, of killing uh, Britishers uh, um, uh, tied to the uh, ends of cannon and blown to pieces or... Uh, uh, made to uh, d d all sorts of things that that would uh, you know d that would defy defile their religion or their caste. Um, yeah. hmm. I've just been uh, reading Geoffrey uh, Wheatcroft's masterpiece, Churchill's Shadow, and of course Churchill regarded India as absolutely permanently British, despised mm. Indians, and. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he would have, I think, smiled upon many of these reprisals. That was his attitude. That's what. That's the way you showed authority. Now, central to the Indian freedom movement was the formation of the Indian National Congress. And here's something else which I had no idea, of which I had no idea, and that is it was started by an English ornithologist. That's right, uh, Alan Octavian Hume, uh, who uh, arrived in India in 1849, uh, joined the Bengal Civil Service. Uh, he was stationed in a in a city called Etawa during the mutiny, uh, where you know there, there were uh, uh, 
some terrible atrocities committed by the sepoys against the British. But but uh, he stood out for you know not not tying those responsible to the ends of cannons or executing them. Uh, he wanted them to be you know tried fairly, uh, and that earned him again the ire of his contemporaries in in the civil service. But what really irked him was uh, something called the Ilbert Bill, which was uh, introduced in 1883. And this gave Indian judges the right to preside over cases involving Europeans. And this threatened Outra to... Outrageous. Outrageous, yes. This, this threatened to, to unleash something which was at the time called the White Mutiny. In other words, Europeans upset that they should be brought before an Indian judge. So he thought that this was, you know, this was beyond the pale. Um, and he, 1885, uh, with the um, uh, backing of, of, of the then um, uh, Viceroy, started up the Indian National Congress. Uh, it was it was it was a, a fairly small gathering of 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 middle class uh, Indians and intellectuals um, that uh, would meet once a year. Um, their their only demands were that you know the basis of government should be widened and that people should have you know proper representation. Uh, there was no talk of independence at that time. They they still would would. You know, declare uh, at their meetings that the British Empire was something that was great and on which the sun would never set. So it it it's kind of chugged along for um, for you know, a, a, a number of years, um, and it was only really uh, when Mahatma Gandhi came back from uh, South Africa in 1915 and uh, you know injected this kind of new life in, into the organisation that it became a mass movement. But uh, but but for the for for the first say 20 or 20 years of its of its existence, it was a fairly laid back, certainly wasn't anything that was going to be threatening uh, the basis of British rule in India. Before we say goodbye to Alan Octavian Hume, we should point out that he was the son of the Scottish reformer James Hume mm. and that he uh, he built a castle to house his collection yes. of 80,000 bird skins and nests. Yes, in Shimla, uh, which is, the building's still there, actually. I've, I've seen it. I haven't been inside. But uh, then he donated this collection to the uh, Natural H History Museum in London. OK, so Gandhi, Jinnah, another brilliant young lawyer who joined the overwhelmingly uh, Hindu Indian National Congress just before, before becoming leader of the Muslim League. Yes, uh, Jinnah. Yes, <laughs> Muhammad Ali Jinnah. Um, so yes, uh, also st you know, studied at the bar. So this was a fairly narrow. Yeah, they were all came. F they all had legal backgrounds, which is which is interesting. As of course uh, did uh, the Mahatma. But okay, so petition leaves India dealing with eight million refugees hmm. who had to be fed, housed, and integrated into society. A big ask. Yes, it was a big ask, particularly as India itself you know it had been you know it had been over the course of the previous uh two centuries uh or more really under the india east east india company uh very extractive uh pursuing very extractive economic policy deindustrializing the country so uh it went from you know being you know controlling a, a a quarter of the world's trade to to just three percent, um, and it had uh, you know it was it was enormous um, um, challenges. Well, uh, let's look let's look at the state the place was in after the mm. the Brits make their reluctant exit. Mm. Uh, we've got a literacy rate of what sixteen percent, less 16%. than five percent, in yeah. rural areas for women. Mm. Life expectancy, 32 years, mm. and 47% of the working population live below the poverty line. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and for a population of 360 million in 1951, there are only 700 primary health clinics. Yes. That is a disgrace. Yes, it is a disgrace by any... Uh, by any definition, yeah. So yeah. a country plundered by Britain and Europe 
was left on its knees. Yes, yes, pretty much, pretty much. Uh, and so you, the first Prime Minister of India, Jawaharlal Nehru, uh, very influenced by um, you know, the Soviet socialist experiment, decides that uh, India will have a, a planned economy, um, a, a very socialist-oriented economy, and uh, you know, think, believes that that's going to be the, the, the best way of... Uh, you know, making India progress and uh, and seeks a lot of assistance from the then Soviet Union, which steps But in. there's a paradox here, John, because mm. India adopts a Westminster model of government. Mm -hmm. The constitution enshrines the principles of separation of power, freedom of mm. religion, expression. Mm. So, yes, he, you know, he turns to the West for that sort of inspiration and to the Soviet for economics. Yes, yes, that's that, that is true. I mean, you've also got to remember that uh, the Congress Party, which which was the natural party of governance after independence. I mean, it, it had spent uh, you know the best part of sixty, seventy years um, fighting for India's independence. So it comes into power, uh, you know, with that that being its raison d'etre. It it it's it's it hasn't really um, thought a lot about how it's going to uh, run India, how it's going to administer India, apart from the fact that it's obviously going to be a, a, you know, a, a democracy and, it, and, and the constitution is, is, is quite a liberal one um, when, when it's, when it's uh, implemented. But uh, it's, it was a party that brought India to independence. And in fact, Gandhi wanted Congress to disband uh, at independence and for you know for everything to start all over again you know that didn't think that Congress was a party that was fit to actually lead an independent India. I wonder how Nehru would have felt about his daughter Indira, her behaviour after she took power because uh, she oversaw the advent of testing nuclear weapons. She ratcheted up tensions with Pakistan. She suspended the constitution. She arrested opposition leaders, shut mm. down media organisations. She was a pretty tough cookie. She was a tough cookie, which which um, surprised those people who put her in power in the first place, because uh, uh, after Nehru died, Lal Bahadur Shastri took over. And uh, you know, in the, you know, the story of India might have been quite different had he not died prematurely while attending a meeting of the Non-Aligned Movement in Tashkent. Um, and, uh, and and so 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 there's something called the syndicate in the Congress Party um, decided that uh, they would they would install Indira because they thought that quote unquote should be a dumb doll and easily manipulated. Well, she proved them wrong and uh, turned out to be a very, you know, conniving, capable, savvy politician uh, and uh, successfully led India, uh, successfully won several elections, except for uh, the one after uh, her, her declaration of, of independence. But, uh, but perhaps the greatest legacy of, of, of her prime ministership, and it's one that which... Uh, is, is the most unfortunate one as well, I think, is that uh, it entrenched this dynastic politics, which is what India is living with today. And countries like the Philippines as well. It becomes quite a phenomenon, doesn't it? Oh, look, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh. Uh, it's, it's, it's uh, yes, unfortunately. And, and, and I don't think it's, it's ever done these countries any very much good. What about her son, Rajiv? What sort of a fist did he make as Prime Minister? Well, look, he had been an airline pilot. So, so Indira Gandhi is assassinated in 1984 by her Sikh bodyguards after ordering a raid on the Golden Temple where there was a Sikh separatist movement uh, based. It's a, it's a long story, but uh, um, but that's in, uh, I think it's October 84. I was in Delhi at the time, actually just a backpacker travelling through India, but I remember it well. And uh, and so her, her son, there's terrible rioting afterwards because uh, uh, Hindus turning on Sikhs, there's, it's, it's the worst communal bloodshed since uh, partition. Uh, Rajiv Gandhi is, is brought in. Uh, he, you know, he's, he's, he's been an airline pilot. He has had sh shown no interest whatsoever in politics. He has no 
I there's no feel for for the real India, for what people are are, are thinking, what 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 their needs are, and so on. He does have this reputation of being Mr. Clean when he comes into into politics, but he's uh, but but even that that uh, that that uh, uh, wears off pretty quickly as he becomes embroiled in various corruption scandals. But he was a, he was he was not fit to rule. I mean, you know, he made crazy pronouncements like there'll be a computer in every classroom by you know the year 2000 forgetting that uh, the majority uh, in, in every village in every classroom by the year 2000 forgetting that there were uh, uh, most of these villages had no electricity <laughs> but he paid he paid a heavy price because he too was assassinated uh, by the Tamil Tigers in what 1991 1991. I was in India again for that as well, uh, working as a diplomat in Delhi. But uh, yes, because of a very you know ill-judged uh, intervention in the uh, civil war in Sri Lanka, and he was blown up by a Tamil suicide bomber while campaigning in in the 1991 elections. And then the baton, uh, yeah, of course, would would so Congress wanted to pass the baton to his, um, his wife Sonia Gandhi, but she she refused. So much to cover, so little time, even for your very <laughs> short history. So I've, I want to talk about India's role. When it becomes a fully-fledged superpower, a global leader, could there see a standoff between New Delhi and Beijing? Look, that is... I think that that uh, strategic dynamic is probably one of the most volatile ones in, in the world at, at this time. I mean, he is, is volatile a, a euphemism for dangerous? Dangerous, yes, yes, exactly, yes. I mean, here are two nuclear-armed uh, powers uh, vying for influence uh, in the same regions. Uh, China has got the upper hand at the moment with its Belt and Road Initiative, making inroads into places like uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka. You know, India and China have already fought one war in 1962, there have been numerous skirmishes on the line of control. Um, again, uh, things got pretty heated there a couple of years ago. Uh, the only thing that's really stopped, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, you know, like, like, like a, a actual exchange of arms, is 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 a is a pact that both countries have signed signed that there'd be no weapons on, on that uh, border between India, that the forces not uh, use weaponry on that border. Otherwise, there probably would have been a lot more lives lost over the years. But but yes, look, there's a, there is that rivalry is very, very uh, uh, strong. And I, I can only see it getting getting stronger, which is, of course, one of the reasons why India has joined the, the Quad. Yeah. What a shame we haven't had a chance to uh, talk about Modi. But uh, <laughs> perhaps you'll come back for, for, yes. for a second go. But look, John, thank you immensely. John Zabriskie's uh, book is The Shortest History of India, published by Black Ink Books, and it also wins him a koala stamp. Good on you, John.
Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.